Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. We will begin reading here in just a moment in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 38 is where we'll begin, and uh, we will read all the way down to verse 44. So for the last several weeks, as we have continued our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we have seen Jesus in the midst of one confrontation after another. Last week we saw that Jesus had answered all of his attacks from the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes. He'd answered all of their attacks so well that they stopped asking him any more questions. In fact, the text says that they dared not ask Jesus any more questions because in every attempt to try to discredit Jesus, they only proved that Jesus was wiser than them over and over again. But Jesus was not done doing his teaching. Last week we saw him go from defensive to offensive, but even when he was on the defensive, he was on the offensive. But now they're done talking and Jesus keeps talking. Jesus starts to ask them questions to see if they can answer wisely. And it would be fair to presume that we only have little snapshots here uh, in the Gospel of Mark from the lengthier teachings that Jesus was doing in the temple. I mean, it, we likely, in the New Testament, in the gospel story, we just have quick pictures of what were much larger sets of teaching from Jesus. But in today's passage, we see uh, something that's been consistent with Jesus throughout the gospel, and that's the fact that when Jesus teaches, he, he doesn't always pull punches I mean, in chapter 11, we saw Jesus physically flip tables in his frustration over the corruption that was happening in the temple. And now we see Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, elaborating all the more on what he was seeing. So let's read uh, verse 38 through 44, and then let's pause and pray for understanding. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put large sums in. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow 
has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, I am weary of the sins that this text exposes in my own heart and life. And the ways in which my worship aligns with the wrong character in this story. Now, Father, I pray as we read this passage this morning and we dive deeper, that you would expose similar realities in all of us. And you would help us to see not only the sin of the, the scribes, but you would help us to see how it is merely a picture of what dwells within us. And God, I pray that our worship in this place, in this moment, even as we hear a sermon, that it would be pleasing to you as the widow's offering was pleasing to Jesus in this moment, Father. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and speak true things from me, even though I am a corrupted vessel. We thank you for your grace, and we pray that you would speak now by that grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We've learned from the Gospel of Mark that Mark strategically orders his material to make important theological points. And here Mark places two teachings side by side so as to compare two types of worshipers that present themselves before the Lord. The scribe in the temple and then an impoverished widow in the temple. One of the worshipers serves as a warning to us. The other worshiper serves as an example for us to imitate. In the culture of the time, it would have been generally assumed that the scribe was the model of godliness. I mean, according to popular sentiment, the scribe is the one who's been blessed by God with a position of prominence. He's the honored one among many. He's, the, he's wealthier than most. He has power and authority and influence. He's making a difference in the kingdom of God. Whereas the impoverished widow who stumbles into the temple, on the other hand, doesn't appear at all to be blessed by God. She has no prominence, no financial resources of her own, no influence. There's nothing she can say that will direct the kingdom of God or or cause some sort of big difference in the world. The culture very naturally would have assumed that the worship of the scribe was more valuable and more impressive worship. But just as Jesus has done from the beginning, he readjusts common perspectives and he flips natural values on their head just like he flipped the tables in the temple. Rather than praise the scribe, and rather than praise the wealthy people giving large sums of money in the temple, Jesus 
actually warns very sternly against the scribes. Jesus uses a word in verse 38 that begins this sort of teaching segment, and the word is beware. The word beware is used to convey potential danger. Like a shepherd warning his sheep that wolves are on the hunt, Jesus says, be careful, be on guard, watch out for this. Not only watch out that you might be fooled by this, but watch out that you might be guilty of this. Mark 12, verse 38. Beware of the scribes. And notice the repetition of the word like. This is what they like to do. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And they like greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogue, in the places of honor at the feasts. Three warnings from the scribes that I want you to see this morning, beginning with number one. Warning number one, beware of people-pleasing worship. What is it that the scribes enjoy? What is it that the scribes uh, wake up in the morning hoping to experience? The scribes like to walk around in long robes, special robes that set them apart from the common people. In the temple. They like the greetings in the marketplaces, meaning they like it that everyone wants to talk to them, acknowledge them, get attention from them. They like the best seats in the synagogues, the seats up front where they have the best view and where they can best be viewed. They like the places of honor at the feast. And we've seen, as we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. We are warned that there is a way to do godly-looking things in very godless ways. There's a way to do godly things without the motivation of pleasing God. There's a way to preach this sermon in a godless way. And you would never know it. Because the godlessness would be in my heart. Remember Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees in Mark 7, verse 6. Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they Worship me. There is a way to have the name of the Lord on your lips without the glory of the Lord as the priority in your heart. And in this case, Jesus points out that the scribes have a driving motivation, and it is not to please God. It was not to worship God. It was not to lead others to worship God. Rather than offering genuine praise to God, their heart's desire was chiefly to receive praise from other people. It was not God whom they wanted to please. It was men whom they wanted to please. And this is a dangerous disposition to be in. And it is one that every single person in this room struggles with, whether you realize it or not. You want to be liked. Amen? Don't you? You feel that? You want to be valued. You want to be affirmed. 
You have a desire in you, a very natural one, that wants to be told, good job, well done, you look good, you did good, you smell good, you write good, you talk good. You want to be told that you are strong, smart, funny, likable, tough, and even godly. Because there's a hole in the soul that feels empty and inadequate without someone else's approval. And the human nature is such that it seeks to fill that hole in the soul with as much of other people's praise and affirmation as possible. You seek it from your parents, from your teachers, from your bosses, from your spouses, from your friends. We all want to be important. We all want to be significant, and there's a sense in which some of those longings for love and some of those longings for affirmation are designed to be fulfilled in healthy ways within the Christian community of encouragement and affirmation. But, but what happens when you twist even religious practices into something that serves your longings for recognition more than they serve the God whom you're giving lip service to? What happens when your prayers within the congregation are more about proving yourself to others than they are about pouring yourself out to God? What happens when prayers in front of people come often and easy, but prayers in the quiet of your living room are few and far between? What happens when your primary thoughts at the synagogue become about which seat of honor you'll get rather than how you will edify those in the seats around you, Jesus says, beware of people-pleasing worship. In fact, he says, there's a greater condemnation for this kind of worship. And there's a sort of selfishness that comes with man-centered, people-pleasing worship that actually serves self, not just instead of serving others, but this type of worship serves self at the expense of others. When you Live your life in such a way where you are trying to direct other people's eyes to you. Then you are also directing their eyes away from the Lord. Notice in verse 40 how this selfish worship leads into uh, uh, serving self at the expense of others. Look at verse 40. Jesus describes these scribes as those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Jesus notes the scribes will take every last penny of the poor widow's money to pay for their own luxurious lifestyle, all the while they make long prayers in the synagogue pretending to be holy. The accusation is one of hypocrisy. Warning number two, beware of hypocritical worship. Beware of hypocritical worship. Now, this verse about devouring widows' houses would have been more striking to the first century reader because of how clear the Old Testament teaching was on the responsibility for the community of faith to care for the widows among them. The Old Testament, which the, the scribes claimed to be experts in, was full of warnings to anyone who mistreated widows, who took advantage of widows, who could not help themselves in that society. We see the emphasis in Exodus, Exodus chapter 22, verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Now, why widow and fatherless child? They have this in common, that in that society and in that culture, they, they needed the community to care for them. 
They did not have the means to care for themselves. And so if they found themselves in a community seeking to exploit them rather than seeking to care for them, then they were doomed. And the people of God was meant to be a different kind of society, not one that pressed down those who were weak and needy, but ones who lifted up those who were weak and needy. The people of God were meant to resemble the heart of God, who is the strongest of all beings, who kneels down to help the weakest. So Exodus 22, 22 says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I'll hear their cry. And with my, my wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. We see the seriousness of this over and over again in Israel. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, one of the reasons why God was so frustrated with the worship of the people of Israel was that they were obeying all the ceremonial and all the religious parts that he had instructed them, but they were totally ignoring the moral implications of the law. You look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, God tells Israel, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, your new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of convocations. I can't endure the iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. These are all things God had commanded them to do. And he says, I'm tired of your obedience in this area. Verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The people were obeying the ritual expectations of God's law, all the while totally ignoring the moral implications of God's instruction. Here in the Gospel of Mark, the Sadducees are worshiping God publicly and proudly, all the while disobeying God in one of the clearest teachings of the Old Testament. Not just neglecting to meet the needs of the widows, but exploiting them, and the text says, devouring them. What is hypocritical worship? Hypocritical worship is the kind of worship that picks and chooses the types of religious activity that suits you best. It's the kind of worship that puts you in the place of God that chooses which way is best to worship God while ignoring what he's actually said in all areas of life. It's the kind of worship that throws itself into the public and praiseworthy acts of worship while totally ignoring and rebelling against the very obvious teachings in the Lord that we don't want to obey. And the text says, be warned. I don't know if you have been following the news lately and what's going on with the broader Southern Baptist Convention, but there, there were men, many men in the Southern Baptist Convention holding public offices who love to walk in long robes and have the best seats at the Southern Baptist Convention, which is happening this week. All the while, they were oppressing, covering up, and ignoring victims of sexual abuse. With the, the name of the Lord on their lips, men totally ignored the implications of the instruction of that Lord to care for those who were weaker to care for those who were oppressed. 
this isn't just a text that finds itself um, relevant 2,000 years ago. Jesus says, be warned of this kind of worship. He's not pleased with worship that publicly praises him while knowingly and willingly ignores his word in other areas of life. He's not, God is not worshiped when we treat him as a God only in the areas of life that are most convenient to us. And it's not just first century, it's not just those men in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's us in the seats in this room who have this temptation. Do you see this in yourself? This temptation to pick and choose which of God's instruction you will obey as if you are the God over his instructions. The point is clear. The scribes do not fulfill either of the two most important commands inquired about just a few verses earlier. What's the most important law, Lord Jesus? Mark chapter 12, verse 29. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. People-pleasing and hypocritical worship does not love God fully, nor does it love others. Rather, it's the kind of worship that merely uses God's and uses others for the fulfillment of the self. The self is ultimate in this kind of worship. We can see this even in the way Jesus describes their financial giving. We're going we're gonna to focus on the impoverished widow here in just a second, but let me point out one more thing about the giving of these scribes and of the wealthy in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Look at this. Jesus sat down opposite of the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. And then Jesus says, many rich people put in large sums. Offerings in the first century were not secretive. In fact, they were anything but. Uh, They were public acts of worship. In fact, large offering boxes were put in the temple, and they were built in such a way, almost like a trumpet, where there's a wider opening at the top and a smaller opening at the bottom so that you could drop it in and not reach in and steal anything. But they were also built in that way to where when you dropped the coins into the box, it amplified the sound throughout all the temple. It actually uh, caused you to look into the direction of the giver when, when the money was being dropped into the treasury. It was a public act of worship. And the public nature of it is not necessarily where the sin is. It's the twistedness of men who turned it into an opportunity to impress others. And of course, there's a lot of that going on. But Mark says, many rich people were giving large sums. So many wealthy people were flaunting their generosity. Their generosity, however, was not a sacrificial generosity. They were giving large amounts, no doubt, compared to others, but there was nothing self-denying about this. There was nothing sacrificial about this giving. Verse 44 says they contributed out of their abundance. In other words, they gave out of their excess, or put more negatively, they gave their leftovers. (laughs) Which leads us to our final warning, warning number three. Beware of leftover worship. The wealthy in this story 
are doing a good thing. They're giving financially for the worship of God in the temple. It's a good thing. But Jesus says they're just giving out of their abundance. They're giving what they don't need. They're giving what doesn't cost them a thing. They gave only what was left over after their own luxuries and expenses were all paid for. Their giving cost them nothing, and therefore it did not make God look glorious. It only made them look glorious. The people of Israel were guilty of this throughout the Old Testament. You look in the story of Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, Malachi speaks out against the people of Israel because as they're bringing their worship to the Lord, they're always and only bringing the animals to sacrifice that are of no use to them anymore. Malachi chapter 1, verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, he will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. Beware of leftover and lanyap giving. The giving of the Lord, only that which doesn't cost you anything. This text should cause you self-reflection to ask, does the Lord get my leftovers financially? Does the Lord get my leftovers with my time? It's interesting how in conversation with people, how we automatically assume that our jobs or sports or weekly vacations at the camp, or whatever, automatically takes precedence over worship of the Lord. It's interesting how we prioritize in life. And are you disciplined to sacrificially give to the mission of the Lord to the same degree that you are disciplined to manage your money so that you can buy the thing that you want to buy? Or does giving in your life look more like an afterthought tip to the Lord as the plate passes by? When you spend a lot of energy building relationships with other, others, a lot of energy working and planning for the promotion or for the vacation or for the fitness plan that we hope to have, does the Lord get that type of intentionality and planning in your life? Do you have goals and benchmarks and dreams of how you might grow spiritually or help someone else grow? Or, or does the Lord get leftover energy and sort of leftover intentionality after all the other priorities are finished? Beware of that kind of worship that actually sacrifices nothing. Worship from Genesis to Revelation always has, has sacrifice as a key component of what makes the worship valuable. Because it declares the value of the one you're worshiping more than the value of the thing that you are sacrificing. Remember Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler who valued his possessions more than he valued God. And Jesus looked at him in Mark 10, 21 and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. These tendencies 
to value stuff and status more than God are tendencies that are more present in our own hearts than we realize. The scribes in this story and throughout the Gospel of Mark, they're not unique extreme sinners. They're simply representatives of a human condition. They're not the only example we have, though, in this text. After having called them out publicly, Jesus pulls his disciples privately and he points out another worshiper in the temple. He looks past all the people-pleasing, hypocritical, selfish showboating and he spots one individual in the room and he says, don't look at all those loud gestures of praise. Look at this woman. Verse 42. A poor widow came. And put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. A penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had, to live on. Though this widow puts in very little, Jesus makes a shocking statement about the quality of her gift. He says she has put in more than all of those. Now, obviously, she did not put in quantitatively more, but Jesus says she put qualitatively more in the offering box. In other words, her worship was sweet and precious and valuable to the Lord despite its smallness. Why? What makes worship qualitatively more valuable to the Lord? Now, I mean, pause here. This isn't in the notes, but this should be very encouraging to you if you feel like you don't have much to offer to the Lord. If you feel like, well, I'm not the smartest, I'm not the wealthiest, I'm not the most gifted. I'm not in the position where I can influence great church planting movements or whole congregations. I have no influence in my society. I barely have influence even in my own family. This should be an encouraging moment to you because here's Jesus spotting a woman out of the crowd who has none of those things. And he says, this is the precious kind of worship. This is the one who has offered to me qualitatively more than everyone else in the room. What makes her worship qualitatively more valuable? Truth number one about true worship would be true two of these. Truth number one, true worship seeks to please God, not man. The widow was different than the scribes in every way. She did not seek to please others. She was not seeking attention. In fact, some of, someone of her social status was likely trying to avoid attention, if at all possible. <laughs> Attraction from other people, attention from other people, was something she would have tried to avoid. Attention was not her motivation. She gives the equivalent of a penny. It was something to be embarrassed by compared to the others giving in the temple. So why, I mean, I, I would assume if the coin, the, the, the one coin or the two coins made any sound at all when she dropped them in, that she quickly walked away from the offering box so that no one would recognize her. 
So why give it all? Why put yourself in the social situation of ridicule when you might as well just not come into the temple at all? I mean, this, this accounted for about six minutes of a wage. <laughs> there must have been some sort of purity about the motivation if there was no gain to be had socially. It must have been about more than being seen by others. It must have been about being seen by God. God designed you to seek approval, but God designed you to seek the approval, not of the people around you, but of the God who created you. Notice the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he warns against the public worship and he he urges you into the private worship of Matthew 6, 1. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their award, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Why? What's the motivation? And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues or the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into the room, shut the door, pray to the Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. True worship wants to please God because the worshiper loves God and wants the reward that only God can give. True worship flows from the most important commandment. To love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The widow's gift had no chance of impressing anyone, but God was her audience. And with God as her audience, she gave it all. Her gift was different. In fact, Jesus says it was qualitatively more valuable than others because... She gave all she had. Not leftovers, not lanyap. She gives all she had. Verse 44 says, all she had to live on. (laughs) Truth number two about true worship. True worship makes God look glorious. She gave so sacrificially that she was not sure where the next meal would come from. She would... Therefore, have to bank on God being trustworthy to provide for her needs. And Jesus says in doing so, she gives far more than everyone else. This is the type of sacrificial giving Jesus has expected from all of his followers in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, If you come after me, deny yourself and take up a cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus calls for a kind of worship and a kind of obedience and a kind of giving that makes him look worth giving everything up for. This is exactly the kind of thing that Paul said happened when he became a Christian. All the things that he once saw as valuable now paled in comparison to the value of knowing his Savior. Philippians 3 verse 7 Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain 
Christ. Now, this is one of the many areas where the prosperity gospel preachers get it all wrong. They teach that money, uh, they teach on money all the time and how you should give financially to their causes, but they provide as motivation the possibility of you becoming more and more and more rich in this life. They dangle in front of you, in front of your face, the carrot of present prosperity, all the while the only ones getting rich are those who are preaching. They've so twisted the concept of financial giving that it makes it hard to talk about it in good and healthy ways. But the Bible talks about giving. The Bible commands Christians give for the relief of the poor, the accomplishment of the Great Commission, the support of pastors in the church, the work, work of the ministry in the church. All of that falls under this one heading. We worship in this way. We give to make God look glorious. That's where the value is. That's what we're trying to showcase to the world. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, Jesus gives us this analogy for what it's like to know God and serve him and worship him. This is what it's like to worship God in the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven that is knowing the God of heaven and serving him as king. This is what it's like. It's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and in his joy he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. He sacrifices everything else for the value of of knowing this God forever and ever. Pleasing God and making him known, even when it costs us everything, and especially when it costs us everything, makes God look glorious. And I'm concerned, just as even as I study this text and I think about my own life, I'm concerned that the American church is not, endure, is not prepared to endure costly worship. Because we've been so conditioned to believe that worship is never costly and it's never uncomfortable. It never conflicts with the things that we want to do, the jobs we want to work, the money we want to make, the thing we want to do. It's always a nice addition to the things that we already want to do. But the testimony of the Bible is clear that specifically sacrifice is what makes worship look glorious. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, you will testify to my majesty. That word witness is where we get our word martyr. What will it be that makes Christ look so glorious? What will the disciples do in the end that will make him look worth it? Every one of them would give their lives in the professing of this Jesus. True worship makes God look glorious. So, so what do we do with all this, right? I mean, this hasn't been like a lift-me-up buttercup type of sermon, right? Um, like, I'm really glad I came today to get whapped over the head about all my selfishness this morning. What do we do with this? I mean, what motivates us to even want to be like the impoverished widow versus the wealthy scribe? I mean, everything in our society says, wealthy scribe, way to go. Impoverished widow, let's avoid that. Everything, we're surrounded by a whole culture and world, and the desire of our own heart says, I don't want to do that. So where's the motivation come from to, to be a true worshiper? Well, the answer is in the one giving the teaching. The answer is in the one who will accomplish the ability, not only the forgiveness of fake worshipers, but the ability to become a true worshiper. So here are the takeaways 
three takeaways. <clears throat> Takeaway number one, confront your people-pleasing worship with the gospel message. In other words, confront that people-pleasing worship side of you with what you believe to be true about what Jesus accomplished for you. Listen to this quote from pastor and author Dane Ortland. Hit the nail on the head. I just stumbled across this this week while I was uh, preparing for the sermon, and I was like, this is what we're talking about. Dane Ortland says this, what we all tend to do is walk through life amassing a sense of who we are as an aggregate of what we think everyone else thinks of us. We walk along building a sense of self through all the feedback pinging at us from other people. We don't even realize we're doing it. When others are critical of us, snub us, ignore us, ridicule us, that builds a sense of who we are. It shapes us. And so we must constantly hold, if we're going to survive, we must constantly hold the gospel before our eyes. And as the gospel becomes real to us, the need for human approval loses its vice-like grip on our hearts. Because we are no longer putting our heads down on our pillows at night, medicating our sense of worth with someone else's approval, human approval, sensing our inadequacy. We always, this is what we do in life, we set up our career, our relationships, our studies, our public speaking, our athletic abilities, and they function as gods to which we're looking for justification, for someone to tell me, you're okay, you're valuable. And he says, but what if we went into the interview the conversation, the classroom, the game. What if we went into that situation this week already okay? Already justified because of the finished work of the cross? This is the beauty of the gospel message. That what Jesus came to do in his life, death, and resurrection. He came to be for you what you could never be. He came to measure up. So that God's approval of you is not based on your failure. It's based on Jesus' success. This is what justification by faith means. God declares you right in his eyes by virtue of Jesus' perfect life sacrificed on your behalf. You don't need to please people when the God of the universe is pleased with you right now by virtue of the blood shed on the cross which marks you as valuable to him. We sang just a moment ago that two wonders I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. I am not worthy of God's love, but if I look to the cross, I find that Christ, through the blood of Christ, God finds me worthy. Dwell on that reality. Live on that reality. Child of God, only through faith in Jesus are you completely, totally right with God. And are you approved fully and finally and forever? You don't need my approval. You have the Lord of the universe's approval because of Christ. Takeaway number two, confront your hypocritical worship with the gospel message. When Jesus came to justify you in God's sight, to declare you righteous, but he also came to transform you. The gospel of Jesus is the good news that you're forgiven of all your sin, but it's also the good news that he is to empower you to overcome your sin right now. And perhaps you're here this morning and you feel somewhat trapped in hypocritical worship. 
there's a sin struggle, a particular area of your life that you feel it is impossible to rid yourself of. So you always live in this state of feeling hypocritical. There's this area where you're obedient, but there's always this area where you are knowingly, tangibly disobedient, and you feel it. And let me offer a word of encouragement. Be encouraged. The gospel both acknowledges your failures and it gives you hope for overcoming them. Jesus came not just to save the hypocrite, but to transform him slowly but surely through the fight of faith. Jesus came to create worshipers in spirit and truth. Christian, you are in process. The gospel promises that God will slowly bring you into alignment, bring into alignment your beliefs and your actions through the power of the Spirit that helps you fight sin, repent, and believe more and more every day. Lean into the power of the Spirit to fight the hypocrisy within. Takeaway number three, last one. Confront your leftover worship with the gospel message. The gospel message tells the story of a Jesus who sacrificed everything for the sake of drawing us to himself. Philippians 2.8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave of himself everything so that he might give us grace unimaginable forever and ever. Remember this about the gospel when you are tipping God at the end of the week, having ignored him. Listen to what he has given you in the gospel through the full sacrifice of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Confront your leftover worship with the truth of the gospel that God has not just given you leftovers. He has lavished you with all that he has in the promises of Jesus, which means that there is no real sacrifice on this side of heaven because it will all be returned to us a million times over in the age to come. Is your worship, your giving, your sacrifice consistent with what you believe you're promised by the sacrifice of King Jesus, let's pray that our worship would uh, align with what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we come to you um, <clears throat> having sat under a heavy message, having seen these two examples of worshipers in the New Testament, and oh, Father, we are stunned that you would count as valuable the worship of an impoverished widow, that you would accept the worship of someone like us, 
perhaps maybe that the world has counted out as being of any value at all. Father, we, we are stunned that, that there would be any kind of worship that you would accept from us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to worship you even now from a place of humility, uh, from a place of wanting to please the Lord rather than please anyone else, and that you would grant us the miracle of the gospel, that you would make us worshipers in spirit and truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.